Beloved, I am one of your pastors, Mike Sherritt. It's my privilege this morning to finish our little mini-series on the conflict that believers experience. As you're turning to our text, 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17, I do want to point out two significant things that happened here at the building yesterday. Number one, the Presbytery of the Blue Ridge approved Chris Colquitt's transfer exam and put a call into his hand so it's official he's coming. That, yes. And secondly, extremely warm hospitality was offered to the Presbytery by a small army of volunteers, many of you under Joyce Field's uh, leadership, supplying breakfast and a wonderful lunch. And I want to publicly thank those precious volunteers for giving of their Saturday to make sure we were a very hospitable church to the Presbytery. So those two things. Here's our, yeah, thank you. Uh, the text is in your bulletin as an outline as well that I provided for you. First John chapter 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you are relatively new to Trinity, so grateful that you're here, you may have noticed that we do this thing in our service every week. It's on page five of the bulletin where we intentionally pronounce our rejection of three things, sinful desires that separate us from God and one another, the evil powers of wickedness, Satan, and thirdly, the world. You renounce the evil powers of this world that corrupt God's good creation. What's the premise behind this? The premise is you instinctively long to thrive as a human being. You want to flourish. You want to prosper. I don't think any of you woke up this morning aspiring to distress, delusion, disappointment, or despair. And therefore, if something threatened your welfare, would you want to know about it? Yes, you would. And because God is so good, and God is more committed to your, your welfare even than you are, God tells us in his word what promotes and what threatens your welfare. And we saw in the early chapters of Genesis that principles were laid out to help you see how life is designed to flourish. We're at war with indwelling sin, the enemy within. For life to work, something must be killed. And then we saw two weeks ago that there's an enemy on the loose, a schemer, who must be countered with God's truth. And now we're looking at this third enemy, the world. And some of you may be thinking, how 
in the world did life become so problematic on this planet? Good question. God tells us. Once Adam and Eve sinned, chose to live for themselves rather than their creator, they were banished from paradise. They were exiled. They departed from the place of the presence of God, the knowledge of God, the precepts of God, and the glory of God. And that means that Adam and Eve and all of us since no longer live in the place for which we were created. You were built for a sinless, God-centered paradise. And you're no longer there. We are sojourning. We are not at home. We're not at the place we belong. So therefore, here's our principle, our third principle, for you to understand so that your life would flourish. You must know how to sojourn in a hostile foreign land. That's where you're living. You must know how to sojourn in a hostile foreign land. This text helps you with that. So let's look at three questions. Number one, why is it dangerous to live outside of paradise? Fog. Fog is the reason. When you drive in the fog, you know things aren't as clear as they should be. Once Adam and Eve sinned, the entire world changed. Human beings now live under a realm, under a fog of sin, death, and Satan. The Bible calls this atmosphere darkness. The title for it is The World. John would end his epistle this way, 1 John 5.19. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That can't be a safe place to live. You may remember that it is temptation. Jesus was offered by Satan all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Of course, he refused them for a greater glory. The Apostle Paul called Satan the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world, John 12.31. And yet, mark this, beloved, yet none of this danger is obvious to our fallen nature. We're all driving in the fog as if there's no fog. And let me just tease out the layers of how complicated this is. Most of us are relatively comfortable. It, this life is all we've known. And in our culture and in our time, for a lot of us, life is attractive. It's pleasant, productive, stimulating, alluring we have abundance compared to most people in the history of the world. That abundance and comfort leaves you what? It leaves you, beloved, easily 
satisfied without God. Easily content apart from the source of life and goodness and truth and beauty, God. And so the more you have of the world's pleasures, the less you long for God's presence. Don't you know that in your own experience? I do. And look around. Everybody's doing it. However, Jesus warned in Luke 16, 15, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Did you catch that? What most people esteem, exalt, say this is great, God finds detestable. So how would you know which is which? You need revelation from God, and sadly, in our fallen state, we neither have that, nor do we desire it. Sin blinds us to spiritual truth. Once we were kicked out of Eden, we had no appetite or interest in God and the things of God. That's why John would say at the beginning of the next chapter, 1 John 3, uh, 3 1, the world doesn't know God, simply echoing Jesus' affirmation. The world doesn't know me or my father. Why? John 3.19. Men love the darkness rather than the light. And see, because you were built for paradise, you will still instinctively seek the pleasures of paradise. They're, they're imprinted in your soul. You're intuitively motivated to seek paradise. And yet, because of sin, we will do so on our terms, not God's and for our glory, not God's glory. This makes life very dangerous. Do you see what's at stake? Look at verse 17. Look, look at what's at stake. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Beloved, you are living for one of two eternal destinies. What you desire, what you will, or what God desires and what God wills, resulting either in eternal agony apart from the presence of God or unspeakable delights in the presence of God. David describes the presence of God as fullness of joy and pleasures forever. That's what's at stake. One of two eternal destinies. And so Jesus' followers are called to be what? In this world, but not of this world. That's the first question. Have I made some attempt to convince you how dangerous it is to live in this world? If not, I'll just do that whole section again or get somebody else up to do it better than I did it. Are you convinced? Second question. What is the world and the things in the world? Verse 15. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Now, you have to appreciate the word world is used in at least three different ways in biblical thinking. One way is it refers to the creation. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. This creation is spectacular. It's to be appreciated, studied, enjoyed. That's not what's going on here. Secondly, the word world is used to describe 
the humanity that God's heart grieves over due to their sin, and the world is then the theater of his redemptive activity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever not perish but have eternal life. The world is the people that God is saving through you and through the precious missionaries we saw a few minutes ago. The third way, and this is the way it's used in this text, is the world is a pervasive spirit and ethos, the fog that I talked about earlier. Most commentators describe it as life organized in hostility against God. So the world is a worldview. It's a way of thinking that doesn't start with God. It's a way of making sense out of reality, the cosmos, creation, life, death, babies in the womb, sexuality, you name it. Without the most obvious thing in the world, there is a creator who made everything and sustains it. That's the world. So think of the world as a way of faulty thinking about the nature of reality that leads to treasures in a heart that produce cravings, lusts, strong desires. That's the world. Notice John does not locate the problem with things per se. God delights to give his kids things. He is a marvelous parent. He takes pleasure opening his hand and lavishing good things upon you. There's no doubt about that. However, the critical attitude, beloved, is your attitude towards those. John warns you, don't love them. Don't inordinately desire them, crave them. Don't love them more than God. Don't enjoy them on your terms versus God's. Don't find the gift more desirable than the giver. That's the warning. See, the fact is, Jesus taught it, you can't love two things simultaneously. Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters and have two supreme loves. So the world is over here saying, Mike, be enamored with me first and foremost. Jesus is over here saying, oh, be enamored with me. I cannot look at both simultaneously. No one can serve two masters. This is why John ends his epistle with one simple phrase. Beloved, guard yourselves from idols. Things I would esteem more than God. Tons of different things. Good things. I make the best. Versus being in love with the one who gave himself for me and never stops praying for me and will raise me up on the last day. So John gives you an in-depth summary of what he means by the world so you can hang some of your understanding on it. And you may recognize in these three, three things, the three things that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, as well as, this is a different study for a different day, the three ways Satan tempted Jesus. I'll just focus on what John is talking about. He says, 
Here's what the world is. The desires of the flesh over inordinate craving, demanding, I must have lusts of the flesh. Anything you desire that comes out of your sinful nature can be good things. Power, control, approval, wealth, comfort. It could be anything. The desire of the eyes being captivated by appearances irrespective of their place in God's good order. So the idea is, I see it, I want it, I'll get it. And then the pride of life, thinking yourself exalted because you have more than others, you're smarter than others, you're faster than others, you're prettier than others, you're stronger, whatever. Esteeming yourself above others because of the gifts God's given you, ironically. So do you see the controlling issue of your life and mine? Do you crave what you want or what God wants? And who gets the glory for what you have? Do you thank him for breath? For the beating of your heart? I mean, he's keeping your heart going right now. For eyes, for ears, for taste, for smell, for mobility. Janice isn't thanking God for mobility at the moment. Well, maybe she is. Thank you for all you've done for my precious wife. You're exceedingly kind and generous to us. And so just to make sure you get how important this conflict is, John shows you compelling reasons to renounce the world. Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What would be the word that describes this? Incompatible. I can't have my heart's deepest affection, things, and God at the same time. That's incompatible. James put it pretty strongly in James 4.4. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Wow. Verse 17. Next reason renounce the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. If you're living just for the world, you're still on the Titanic while it's going down, making a home there. Don't you love this? The world and its desires are passing away because in glory, paradise restored, everything you desire will be right, righteous, godly of the Lord. There'll be no sinful desires there. That's why we cry every Sunday come Lord Jesus and bring us to that place and then he says whoever does the will of God abides forever loving the father now is imperfectly as we do it is a foretaste of what we will do sinlessly forever so beloved what's the evidence the love of the father is in you you possess the good things he gives you without them possessing you easier said than done that's why we have these warnings in the Bible you know you love the Father because you're able to enjoy the good things he gives. But your greatest heart's delight is the Lord himself. They don't possess you. I didn't have room in the outline for this. But I want to call your attention to two important short passages in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, you may turn with me. Uh, turn there in your Bible with me. If you have a Bible, it's 1 Timothy 6. Just to show you, just to put the, the, the extra umph on this point, and, and that is the call to contentment. 1 Timothy 6, 8. 
But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich, God may have made you rich. He may have made you really good at what you do. He may have called you to an occupation that pays well. You, you may have been an outstanding steward of your mind, your ability, your gifts, your opportunities. Glory to God. It's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. Proverbs is very clear. It is the desire to be rich that is dangerous. They fall into a temptation, a snare, and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. There's this call to contentment. That's a whole sermon right there. And then this lovely caution a few verses later, 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, is he going to say you need to sell everything? Is he going to say don't be rich? No. He, God may have blessed you with wealth. Some of you more than others. As for the rich in the present world, here's the caution. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We could spend lots of time unpacking that. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. A contentment and caution. Let's end with one last question. How, how, how do you flourish as a sojourner in a hostile land? Uh, you need to become an expert in wealth management. <laughs> you know what the Bible calls wealth management? The word for it in the Bible? Steward. Everything from breath to your mind to your abilities, your time and your resources. We're stewards of these things. You need to become an expert in wealth management. And so the question where this text leads us is for you, how faithfully am, I, faithfully am I caring for all that Jesus has entrusted to me? And let me just suggest five ways you might answer that question to help you answer that question. How faithfully am I caring for the things Jesus has entrusted to me? Number one, open your mouth for the contentment prayer. And that's found in Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I ask before I die. That's a way of saying this is ultimately what matters in my life. Two things I ask. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, particularly about what the culture says I need. And give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. There's a whole sermon here. I don't have time to preach it this morning. It's the prayer for middle class. <laughs> kind of. Keep me from poverty. How many of you woke up this morning and say, I aspire to poverty? Now, I know a lot of us aspire to wealth. You should aspire to be excellent in what God calls you to do. If he chooses to bless you with wealth, thank him. But this is on par with Jesus saying, give us this, this day our daily bread. 
Would you dare to pray this? I mean, look, I read this class on Proverbs. I read this what day of the month? The 30th. Every 30th of the month. Am I really willing to pray this or do I really want wealth? I, yeah, I know my heart. I like things. I like things. I'm a 21st century American. I like things. Open your mouth in the contentment prayer. Secondly, open your wallet. This text calls you to faithful, thoughtful stewardship. Everything you have belongs to God. Everything. And God says, let's, let's have a way of reminding you of the necessity of wealth management, and that is, give me a tenth. Systematically, give me a tenth. Send it to the storehouse, the church. That's the first check you write. It's, there's my total income first. Poof. That's, now we live on the rest. And then look for ways to give offerings to the Lord. Support RUF. Support the local pregnancy center. Support the missionaries over in a closed country. Look for other ways to give, to share your resources. Open your wallet. Third, open your hands every morning. Throw your feet on the floor and say, today's a gift from you, Lord. And I don't know what the rest of this day holds. It's in your hands. Everything I have, I have as a steward. Open your hands. And you're like the night watchman, you know, that's referred to in the scriptures. We don't have those necessarily in our culture. We're blessed to be able to go to bed at night and not worry about the lock the doors and for the most part not worry. The night watchman lives with grateful watchfulness. Every hour that passes by, what's his attitude? Thank you, Lord, we weren't attacked. Thank you, every hour. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But he's still scanning the horizon in watchfulness. So I'm looking at my day, scanning what? My heart, that anything might be coming up, choking out the desire for riches, the worries of this world, the concern for other things. I'm scanning my heart for competing desires. I don't want them taking title to that most precious part of me, my heart, my soul. Open your hands every morning. Next, open your mind. Now, if you remember how I define the world, it is a way of thinking. It's a worldview. It's a way of looking at all of life based on faulty presuppositions about the nature of reality. It starts with, there is no God. I'll just decide what... Of course there's a God. Of course there's a creator. It's another sermon, how obvious it is that there's a creator. Maybe I'll preach that be before I leave. You start with that presupposition, but we need our minds renewed daily, don't we? Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world. That verb means to squeeze into a mold. And it might even be the J.B. Phillips translation says, don't let the wor world squeeze you into its mold. It wants you to think a certain way about every issue in life. Don't know how. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what renews your mind? The Word of God. Counsel from believers. Fellowshipping, prayer, availing yourself of the means of grace within the church family. Having your mind constantly tuned to what is true, valuable, how God reveals himself to you. And finally, Open your heart. Do, do you ever get a song stuck in your mind? Did that ever happen? I hate that. 
I hate it so much if, if we're getting near home and Janice and I are listening to a song, I say, don't start a new one. Because I know if I don't finish that song, my mind's going to try to finish it in my sleep. Yeah, did that ever happen to you? <sighs> you do need a song stuck in your heart. And it's the melody of the gospel. You need your heart constantly. Is it tune my heart to sing thy grace? The only way to be saved from the world ultimately is that your heart is captivated by the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. One verse among many that speaks to this, Romans 8, 32 he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all to actions of God, not sparing his son when by all rights he should never have given his son for his enemies. Who would do that? Who would trade a perfectly righteous man for wicked sinners who hate him? God did not spare his own son, but gave him up. He gave him up to the cross. On the cross, God demonstrates his ravishing love for you, his astounding mercy, his compassion, his kindness, the length he'll go to make you his precious possession. He gave up his son. Will he not also with him freely give us all things, reasoning from the greater to the lesser? If God will do that for you in Jesus Christ, give his son to the horror of the cross, there's nothing good God will withhold from you. This is the economics of heaven. Do you see what Paul is saying about the heart of God? My heart's impulse is take, keep, get, hoard. What's the impulse of the heart of God? Give, sacrifice, supply. If you ever doubt that, look at the cross of Jesus. He gave up his son for you. The impulse of the heart of God is sacrifice. It is to give that you then could enjoy every good gift he gives you. So, beloved, preach the riches of Jesus to yourself. Preach him. Preach the cross. Preach it. Preach it. Preach it to yourself until your heart is at this place. And this is a ditty I sing most mornings. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing I desire compares with you. Keep pounding in the gospel till that's true of your heart. Nothing we desire compares to him. Let's pray. Indeed, Savior, beautiful Lord, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Shepherd of our souls, Sacrificial One, Fountain of Mercy, it's true objectively, nothing we desire compares with you. We need it to be true existentially. So have mercy on us and captivate our hearts and renew our minds that thinking truly as the word of God instructs, thinking in grace as the cross compels, may we be saved 
from this world to do the will of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.